Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Well, good afternoon and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Institute for Government. Welcome to those online, um, as well as the large audience, I'm pleased to say, has joined us in the building today. And of course, welcome to Stephen Flynn, our guest. Uh, My name is Akash Pound. I am a programme director for Devolution here at the IFG and uh, really pleased to be chairing today's event with Stephen Flynn, leader of the SNP in the House of Commons. Uh, Stephen was first elected to Parliament in 2019, Mm -hmm. winning the seat of Aberdeen South, winning it back from the Conservatives in that election, having previously served as leader of the SNP on Aberdeen City Council. And then for the last four months or so, um, Stephen's been the leader of the SNP group. So I'd like to say you're sort of newly in post. You've only been there four months, but those have been, I think it's fair to say, quite an eventful four months in Scottish politics and in the life of the SNP. So yeah. it probably feels like a bit longer to you. <laughs> I did have here four months ago. That was, that was, the, that was the main thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, we're really delighted uh, to, to welcome Stephen. Looking forward to the keynote speech that he's about to deliver Um, setting out his vision for the future of devolution and no doubt other matters besides. Um, So after the speech, there'll be hopefully plenty of time for questions from me, from those in the room, from those watching online who can submit questions on screen using Slido. And uh, for those doing so already, please, if you feel comfortable in doing so, just tell us who you are and where you are from, so to speak. Um, We will be live tweeting the event from the IFG events account using the hashtag IFG Flynn. Uh, Please do follow and engage with us on Twitter as well if you feel like doing so. Okay, so I think that's all from me by way of introduction. Uh, Welcome again to all of you. Stephen, thanks for joining us. And uh, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Thank you uh, very much uh, for that warm uh, introduction. I'm not sure I'll have a look at the hashtag later on. I'll depend uh, on how things go. We all know how Twitter uh, can be at the best of times. But in all seriousness, it's a real privilege uh, to be here. I had hoped to be here a number of weeks ago now, uh, but in a desperate attempt to stop me from doing so, the UK government decided for the first time in history to introduce a Section 35 order uh, in the House of Commons just to, to hold me back from from coming here and speaking to you to you all, but of course there is a there is an issue which I think I must address uh, in the immediate term before I do perhaps get on to talking about things like that section thirty five order and indeed my vision for where devolution is headed, and that's of course in relation to the challenges that the Scottish National Party is facing internally, and you know. I think it's often easy for politicians to hide behind sound bites or simply to say that this is not an issue that we're going to deal with today. We'll walk away and deal with it tomorrow. But the new leader of our party, Hamza Youssef, has dealt with these issues head on. He's been upfront, transparent and open, not just with party members, but most importantly with the public in Scotland in relation to the challenges that we face. Now, I think that's... uh, really good approach to take. I think it emboldens the trust that he will have with the people of Scotland. And indeed, it's a benchmark for all of us politicians to rise to. So, of course, the party has an issue uh, at the moment. Everyone is very well aware of that. 
A governance review has been set up. I'm looking forward to that reporting and I'm sure that in the fullness of time the Scottish National Party internally will be in a much better place. And that, of course, will be thanks to the leadership being shown by Hamza on this particular issue. There has also been much comment about the situation in relation to the Westminster situation, which, of course, is slightly different to the wider party finances. And I think it's important for me to state that we are continuing to do everything that we possibly can to meet our obligations to the House of Commons and to ensure that our staff uh, are indeed protected going forward because they are the most important people for all of us in Westminster. But perhaps uh, enough of that for the moment and back to the topic at hand because it's something that I'm really keen to be talking about. Scotland's Parliament. I am a very much a child of devolution. I can't remember there not being a Scottish Parliament. Indeed, I'm only standing here today because there is a Scottish Parliament. There's not many folk who come from my background, being brought up in Stobie and Whitfield and Dundee and Brecon as well, whose family would not have been able to afford for them to go to higher education, who come to the, the position that I am now in. And that's because higher education in Scotland is free. It's because I was able to go to university without incurring the costs that those in England have to. And that's testament to the powers of the Scottish Parliament, the ability of governments in Scotland to take policy decisions in a different direction. That's something I'm very grateful for on a daily basis. But it's not just in education where Holyrood has acted differently. If we look at health, you don't pay for your prescriptions in Scotland. If you look at transport, we have now a nationalised rail service. And if you're not just over 65, but under the age of 22, you will be able to travel for free on buses. If we look at housing, the Scottish Government ended the right to buy, a policy which crippled communities, not just in Scotland, but right across the UK. If we look at social security policy, the Scottish Government's been able to introduce the Scottish child payment, a payment which doesn't exist in the rest of these aisles, a game-changing Scottish child payment that puts money directly into the pockets of those who need it most. And if we look at the likes of alcohol policy, the Scottish Government, because of the policy flexibility that we have, was able to introduce minimum unit pricing. And we all know the successes that that has brought, as well evidence they have been in recent times. But it's not just about what the Scottish Parliament has done in the past and what it continues to do. Because we need to reflect upon where we are. And for many of us, it feels that devolution is perhaps under threat. We've seen it with the Internal Market Bill. We've seen it with the EU Retained Law Bill. We've seen it with the anti-strikes legislation. Where on each occasion, the Scottish Parliament, quite clearly, a majority of Scottish parliamentarians, rejected those UK policies. And yet UK politicians in Westminster chose to override Scotland's parliament. And of course we've seen it with the Section 35 order in relation to the Gender Recognition Bill. Now that's a topic which is of course fiercely debated, but what's not up for debate is the fact that a majority of parliamentarians in Scotland's parliament voted for that legislation. Parliamentarians from not just the Scottish National Party, but the Scottish Greens, the Scottish Lib Dems, the Scottish Tories, 
and indeed the Scottish Labour Party. It wasn't me who called it a dangerous moment for devolution. If I recall correctly, because it's been a few weeks now, it was the Labour First Minister, because he recognised the overreach from Westminster politicians into the devolved framework. So are we really not on the course that Lord Frost set out, the reversal of devolution? I'm not so sure. I think that for many people, particularly in the Conservative Party, that is their intention. Lord Frost just let the mask slip. And that should worry all of us who want to defend Scotland's democratically elected parliament. So for politicians like myself, we're worried. We're worried about the future of Scotland's parliament. So what do you do when you're worried? You have to rise to the challenge. And we want to lay down the gauntlet to not just the Conservative Party, but also a likely incoming Labour government at Westminster. What is their future vision for devolution? What is their future vision for the Scottish Parliament? And there's a number of areas where we feel that things can and should change. The first of those is probably the biggest economic elephant in the room, single market access. Why is it okay for Northern Ireland to have access to the single market, but not Scotland? After all, at the last count, 72% of Scots were in favour of rejoining the European Union. When we look back to the EU referendum itself, we voted to remain within the EU, and yet we are being denied the access that is being given to others on these aisles. But it's not just in relation to the economy. If we look at immigration, when we were going through the entire Brexit debacle and on the back of it, the Scottish Government was proactive. It sought to engage with the UK government about a bespoke policy, a bespoke immigration policy for Scotland to allow us to meet our demog- demographic challenges. Challenges which exist now and will exist in the future as well. We all know that many of the challenges that we face in our public and private sector are driven by a shortage of people. The best, easiest, and most efficient way of having people would be a return of freedom of movement. But if we can't have freedom of movement, what policies can we have from a UK government to allow us to meet the challenges facing businesses, but also the likes of our health service? But if it's not just the economy and immigration, it's also employment rights. We've seen it with the anti-strike legislation, as I referred to earlier, that the Scottish Parliament was not in support of that. But we've seen it with the likes of fire and rehire, zero hours contracts. Why are the Westminster parties blocking the devolution of employment law? This is something which has been put to the Labour Party on a number of occasions, and I was pleased to see the STUC make very similar points just last week at their conference. But of course, there's one other area where we should see the devolution of powers and maybe where we really want to lay down the gauntlet to the Labour Party, and that's in relation to energy policy. Now, energy policy uh, is something which is very, very close to my heart, Representing Aberdeen, I'm very well aware of the wealth that can be created as a result of good energy policy, but also the problems that can be created if policy is not done in an efficient and effective way. Now, Scotland's energy resources are the envy of very many nations. Scotland produces six times more gas than it consumes, and upwards of two-thirds of our renewable electricity comes from net-zero sources already. 
and look at what is to come. 28 gigawatts of offshore wind as a result of Scotland. We know the plethora of resources that we have in wave and tidal energy. We know the green hydrogen future that could be captured. And of course, we've got the likes of hydro pump storage as well and the investment that has been put into quarry glass and others. Why can't we have a situation with the levers of power to ensure that these things can be followed through in the most effective and efficient way possible are not devolved to Holyrood? Particularly given the challenges that households are facing right across these aisles at the moment. Nobody in this room needs me to remind them of the soaring cost of energy. We have people living in fuel poverty in in energy-rich Scotland. That is a complete and utter absurdity. And it's happened on Westminster's watch. Why is the price of electricity still linked to gas? Why do renewables projects in Scotland pay the highest grid connection fees in the entirety of Europe? Why is carbon capture and underground storage not being deployed in the northeast of Scotland, despite our massive North Sea Basin. It's the obvious choice for it to to be placed there. And yet on numerous occasions, Westminster has chosen not to facilitate it happening. Time and time again, when it comes to energy policy, Scotland has been let down. And we can't afford to be let down again in the future. But whilst immigration policy, energy policy, economic policy and employment law is hugely important, It will, again, surprise no one in this room as a nationalist for me to say that Scotland also must have the power to define its own future. When we saw the reaction late last year to the fact that Westminster essentially holds a veto over the right of the people of Scotland to determine its own future, it should have been a wake-up call to everyone on these islands. If we are truly a union of equals then surely the Westminster parties would want to put that front and centre. And be confident. Be confident about their belief in the union and the ability to convince the people of Scotland to remain within it. But also to be confident about Scotland's parliament being able to exercise that power. Because after all, the Social Attitude Survey towards the end of last year in Scotland outlined that upwards of 70% of people in Scotland believe that the Scottish Government are best placed to act in their interest. If the UK Government is so confident about their position, then let's put it to the challenge. Let's empower the people of Scotland, both now and in the future. So devolution is a precious thing. It's something that I have benefited from, that countless others have benefited from. But it is very much under threat, and it does very much need to be emboldened. So thank you all very much for listening. My throat's a wee bit dry, so I'm going to get a glass of water now. Um, I'm more than happy to answer any questions that you may or may not have. I'm afraid I'm going to have to shoot off relatively quick uh, at the end because I do have some parliamentary business to to adhere to. Um, But thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, And I look forward to, to seeing what you have to ask. Thank you.
Great. Well, um, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Stephen, for that uh, really thought-provoking talk. We'll be definitely taking questions from others um, in a few moments. I mean, first of all, just a a couple from from me, I suppose. So we may well get on to the uh, subject of independence. I wouldn't be surprised. (laughs) But um, before we do that, I I just want to say, I mean, I I think it is welcome that, well, that you in this this speech and, and the SNP's thinking about what devolution, how devolution could be improved within the union. We know what, the SN, what you and the SNP ultimately want as the destination, but, you know, we've sort of said it's, it's a sensible debate to be having. Yeah. Like, is there an evidence base for changes to the devolution settlement, whether that's further powers or other kinds of constitutional protections that could be given to the Scottish Parliament? So... Um, as I say, I'm glad you're you're addressing those issues. So on energy specifically, which you which you came on to at the end as a sort of central theme, I just wonder if you're able to to flesh out a bit more what are the the specific levers and powers you would like to see devolved, and that you think could feasibly be devolved, sort of maybe by a, a, a you know in the next parliamentary term or, or whatever, because it's quite a it's quite a complex policy area, actually, in terms yes, of the division it. of powers. You know, some aspects of this are devolved, planning consents and so on. Um, but, you know, we have a national grid. We have Ofgem mm-hmm. that regulates the market at UK-wide level. A lot of the offshore oil and gas industry is certainly regulated and taxed at a UK-wide level. So what, what does this ultimately what actually mean for you, devolution of energy powers? I guess the easiest way to, to sum it up is the ability to, to licence and the ability to invest strategically. And now I touched upon that in my remarks in terms of where the investments have not been with the mm. likes of carbon capture and storage. But when we look at the wider picture here, we see the United States with the Inflation Reduction Act seeking to really drive home their green agenda. We know that the European Union is going to respond accordingly. We know that European nations are very much on the front foot in terms of investments as well. And what I don't want to see is Scotland being left behind Mm. in that investment prospectus. And what we've seen from the Chancellor so far indicates that we probably will be left behind when it comes to investment. But I think the same is true of the Labour Party. I'm not entirely sure where they stand in terms of where those investments in Scotland's renewable future could be. And key to that investment and key to that licensing uh, regime is the ability to really harness the manufacturing potential, the supply chain potential, which comes from that within Scotland. You know, we talk often about oil and gas and the best part of half a, £450 billion pounds which has flowed to the UK Treasury. But if you go to Aberdeen, you don't see manufacturing of oil and gas facilities. What you see very much is supply chain. What you see very much is the services that accompany that. And yes, we should have that and we must have that when it comes to renewables as well. But we want to see that manufacturing basis there. And a lot of that will come through the ability to drive investment. And some of that will come through the ability to drive the, the licensing regime forward as well. If we, if we look at Corrie Glass, for instance, a hydro pump storage project, um, the, the brains behind that, the people behind that have been seeking approval from the UK government and investment from the UK government for a long time. Now, they've taken the first steps and put their money where their mouth is in relation to that project. But ultimately, they need the UK government 
to come with them. Now, in respect of, of the grid, there's undoubtedly challenges in respect of that, but we know that Scotland's been let down by the lack of investment in grid infrastructure to the point that many of the offshore wind projects that are likely to happen off the coast of Scotland, many of those involved with them are now looking at the, the ability to simply produce green hydrogen offshore as opposed to connecting directly into the grid itself because of that lack of investment over decades. So having the ability to control the the grid investment, having the ability to control licensing and wider investment in renewables is crucial to really driving home uh, that supply chain investment, that manufacturing uh, basis and making sure ultimately that we're then able to transition jobs from the fossil fuel industry into the renewables industry, something which is incredibly important to, to me and very close to my heart. Mm. Okay, thanks. And I mean, in terms of that transition then um, from, as you say, oil and gas to, to renewables, um, I mean, this was an issue that came up, of course, during the SNP leadership contest, yeah. where I think both Kate Forbes and Ash Regan, the, obviously the two <laughs> unsuccessful candidates, both suggested that maybe the transition away from oil and gas shouldn't be rushed. Kate Forbes doing about it, talked about doing it at, at the right pace. I mean, you're, as you mentioned already, MP for the oil and gas capital of Europe, I think it's sometimes called Aberdeen. Are you not concerned that a kind of speedy transition away from fossil fuels, which the Scottish government seems to favour, um, is, is not going to damage the economy and, 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 and jobs and so on in the part of the country you represent? So two things matter when it comes to that. The, the first is climate change. It's... It's here to stay, it's not going away, and we need to be conscious of the impact that our actions have upon the the climate. But secondly, we also need to be aware of energy security and the requirements which not just Scotland has, but the rest of the UK and indeed Europe has to ensure that its citizens are able to heat their homes, charge their mobile phones and get about their, their daily business. So I've been actually very very impressed with the attack taken by uh, Hamza Youssef, the, the new First Minister, in relation to energy security and putting energy security at the forefront of this discussion because we can't shy away from the challenges that, that we face in that regard as a collective right across, right across Europe. And, and very much well, what is very, very much at the heart of this debate has got to be the people. It's got to be the people who are working within industry um, itself. My, my family members, my, my neighbours, people who live all around me uh, and who I come into contact with in Aberdeen on a daily basis, their lives are intrinsically linked to the success or otherwise of, of the offshore fossil fuel industry. When the price rises, Aberdeen booms. When it falls, Aberdeen goes into, into a slump. Everyone who is in the area is very familiar with that. So what we need to ensure is that we get a transition which addresses energy security, addresses our climate obligations, but protects those workers and allows them the opportunity to transition to um, to new employment within the renewable sector. Now, that is going to take time. There is no doubt about that. But the time that that takes will be dependent upon the investment that's put in place by, by government to help facilitate things um, d- down the line. Um, but we can't afford, and this is a very important point, we cannot afford under any circumstances the skills, knowledge and expertise of the people who live in my city and the surrounding area who work in that fossil fuel industry to be lost. Because you cannot have a just transition, you cannot have a renewables future without these people being at the very heart of it. Um, they are used to working in the most inhospitable environment possible out in the, the North Sea. And these are the people who can drive, uh, drive the transition to, to a renewables future, and we need them to come with us. 
Okay, thanks. Um, so, I mean, you've spoken a bit about the things the UK government has done that you, you obviously uh, disagree with. I, I don't need to go into that too much. But what, what I wanted to ask was in terms of the, the relationship between the governments. So we have a, a relatively new prime minister and a very new uh, first minister. They met for the first time in person, I think, yesterday. Um, is there an opportunity there for... Uh, a reset of that relationship. I mean, could could the two governments not develop a slightly more mature approach to, to working in partnership, not least on things like, you know, the net zero transition and um, economic strategy for, for the UK as a whole, rather than this constantly hostile relationship we seem to see from both sides? I, I hope so, um, because it's beneficial not just to people living in Scotland, but people living across these aisles. And the, not just the Scottish government, but the, the Welsh government and indeed um, the Northern Irish government, uh, once it's hopefully back in place, has good relationships with, with Westminster. But we also need that relationship to be built upon mutual respect. Um, and I don't certainly feel that there has been respect for, for Scotland and its parliament and its democratic decision-making in recent times in any way shape or form, even if we look at some of the structures that have been put in place, the likes of the common frameworks, um, they're quite clearly not worked in, in the way that they can and should work right across a whole myriad of, of policy areas. So if there's the opportunity for a reset in relations, then good. But that requires goodwill on the on the part of the, the Westminster government. And when, as I say, we're talking about the likes of immigration, when we're talking about the likes of employment law, when we're talking about energy policy, when we're talking about Big things like Brexit and the, I've not mentioned that yet, the, the B word, which isn't often talked about in, in Westminster. When, we, when we're talking about the damage that's been caused by Brexit and the fact that Scotland wants to take a different route, there needs to be some respect and understanding from the, the Westminster establishment in relation to that. And that's not just true of Rishi Sunak, it's also true of, of Keir Starmer as well, because... In many respects, much of the policy framework that's been put down uh, so far by Keir Starmer in relation to migration, in relation to the single market, um, in relation to our wider relationship with the European Union, Scotland's democratic right to choose, is very similar to the policy perspectives of, uh, of Rishi Sunak. So I, I think we need to see movement from both the Westminster parties in that regard. But, you know, we are, we are here willing and able to operate as good faith actors, both whilst we are part of the UK and hopefully once once Scotland's an independent nation because we need to have good relationships with our friends and allies. Okay, so uh, one more quick one from me um, before we take questions. So uh, there'll be a roving mic in a moment. Um, you mentioned the independence word just at the end there. Um, I mean, after Nicola Sturgeon announced her resignation, you were one of the first, I think, sort of senior figures in the SNP to advocate for the, yeah. the postponement of what was then going to be the special democracy conference, I think it was called, that was going to set out the plan for turning the next general election into a de facto referendum, wh whatever that would actually mean. I mean, so that conference didn't happen. Yeah. What, what's the plan now? Yeah, so I, I think it was Firstly, I think it was important that that conference didn't happen to allow the, the leadership candidates to set out their their prospectus. Now, obviously, like all political parties, we're, we're working away in terms of where our policies will be with regards to, to the general election. But, you know, the leader of the party was very clear during the extensive, uh, the extensive number of events which took place during the leadership con contest that 
it's incumbent upon us, I think, as elected members to ensure, and as the Scottish National Party and the wider Yes movement, to ensure that we break the impasse. You know, we've been stuck at 50-50 for the best part of a number of years now, even with the the slight drop that we've perhaps seen in party support in, in recent times. The numbers for independence remain rock solid. It is the thing that doesn't change. So we need to be on the front foot and make those numbers change. We need to ensure that there is that there's that sustained will in Scotland uh, mm. through the opinion polls for people to, to vote for, an in, well, wanting to vote for an independent Scotland. And I actually have a, a crumb of hope in this regard for two reasons. Firstly, when it comes to the Conservative Party, I, I don't know if anyone saw it, but Alistair Jack was at the Scottish Affairs Committee, um, and Alistair's not a wordsmith, but what he did say was that if it quacks like a duck and looks like a duck and waddles like a duck, it's a duck in relation to the poll numbers for Scottish independence, indicating that the people of Scotland have that desire for an independence referendum to to happen. And funnily enough, I kind of take him at his word a wee bit in relation to that, that if we can evidence that, I think he will act upon it. But secondly, and perhaps more uh, readily available to us, is the general election itself. Uh, I think everyone's of the view, um, certainly most people that I speak to are of the view that the polls will narrow between the Conservative Party and the Labour Party. Now that may well end up in a situation where it looks like Keir Starmer is to head a minority government. And in that regard, our asks will be very, very straightforward and our hand will be very strong that the people of Scotland need to have the right to determine their own future and that Holyrood should be empowered to do that. And, you know, over the course of the next year to 18 months, I think that's that's going to be something which, which we see borne out in the polls. And, of course, it's something which I'm not going to stop talking about because in politics you've got to ensure that the, the hand that you're given, and I think that would be a very strong hand for us, I think it's one that the Scottish people would very much take to, is delivered upon. And the... The, the challenge then is for Keir Starmer to either say that he won't give the people of Scotland that, and if he doesn't want to, to accept that, then I'm sure that will be reflected in the, in the ballot box. Well, that would, yeah, that would be a very interesting outcome, be- ideal for you, interesting for us from a research point of view too, no doubt. Um, but, okay, well, thanks, thanks for those answers. Um, keen to come to the audience. So, yes, all right, I can see, yeah, gentlemen there, I believe... I believe from the BBC, but please do say who you are and then we'll come to Aubrey at the front. Uh, BBC Scotland. Stephen, I'm going to drag you back to money, I'm afraid. I'm shocked, David. Um, <laughs> the actual commission in Scotland has said that your party, back in February, raised the prospect of not being able to fi- uh, release its accounts and have them audited in time and was asking perhaps for an extension. And secondly, still on the question of auditors, your predecessor at Westminster, Ian Blackford, has said that earlier this month you gave him an assurance that, in his words, auditors were in place. Uh, OK. Uh, in relation to your, to your second point, David, you know, I, I think it's important to reflect that when we are talking about this, obviously there's a lot of staff involved, um, and I don't want to speculate in too much detail in relation to that until I have certainty. Is it the case that we've been working to secure an audit firm? Absolutely, it's the case. Uh, am I hopeful that we'll be able to do that? Absolutely. Does that equate to having an audit firm in place? Does that equate to having certainty that I will be able to meet the deadlines which have been placed upon us by the House of Commons? 
No, and I'm not going to provide a categorical assurance in relation to that. And those that have provided categorical assurances in relation to that would have probably been wise not to have done so. Were you aware that the Electoral Commission in Scotland had been approached in May with perhaps a reference to postponing the the filing of accounts? Uh, From a party perspective, I don't recall being aware of that, David. Uh, I would have to check my emails in that regard, but I don't recall being aware of that. Um, As I said to your good colleagues um, on Good Morning Scotland yesterday, I was made aware of the situation in relation to the group accounts in mid-February, and we acted accordingly uh, upon that. And, of course, since then, We've been looking to secure an audit firm. Uh, Like I say, that process is ongoing. I hope we'll be in a position where we can secure uh, an audit firm in the the not-too-distant future to put pen to paper, um, for want of a a better phrase, and, of course, to then meet our obligations to to the House. But I I am very much working on that. I'm sure you can can understand that I'm making very many phone calls and having many discussions in relation to it, uh, and I'll be sure to to update you uh, as soon as I have... uh, more information to provide. Okay, thank you. All right, we'll take uh, maybe a couple of questions um, in the group, if that's okay. So, yeah, I, uh, I think Aubrey at the front and then the lady at the back, and then we'll come back to you two off in a second round if, or next round, if that's okay. Go for it. Uh, good afternoon, Mr. Flynn. Aubrey Allegretti from the B- uh, from the Guardian. Sorry, not from the BBC. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I did want to follow up on uh, my colleague's question at the back. Um, you say you're not able to sort of say with confidence that you're going to have an auditor in place in time for the deadline. How long are you confident then that the SNP can continue to pay its Westminster Group staff without short money? And if you can't give them the certainty that there will be an auditor in place in time, what's your message to your staff? In fairness, I don't think I said uh, it's a lack of confidence. I said I don't want to provide certainty where I can't provide certainty. And once I'm able to provide certainty, I'll I'll ensure that that's conveyed both to staff, both to my colleagues uh, in Westminster and indeed uh, to our good friends in the media. As I would say, or as I did say to, to David in respect of his question, I think we need to be conscious of the fact that there is a direct correlation between the availability of short money and the employment of staff. Uh, and I'm not in the business of speculating uh, with regards to that because I have a lot of time and respect uh, for staff. And as an employer, I don't think that would be the best way to conduct my business. The only reassurance that I can provide, as I've provided to them and as I've sought to provide uh, in recent days, is that we are doing everything that we possibly can to ensure that we have an auditor uh, in place and that we're able to meet our obligations. Uh, and we'll certainly take things from there. Great. Okay, thanks. Um, should, should we take a couple so we can fit them all? Yeah, uh, anyway. So, lady there and then uh, the gentleman here. Yeah. Hi. Um, I'm Lucy Dunn and I'm from The Spectator magazine. Hiya. Um so you've talked to me a bit about how Hamza Yusuf has been open and transparent, and there's obviously questions just now about the open and the openness and transparency of the party itself. Um, just this afternoon, Colin Beattie has admitted that he was not aware of the motorhome purchase made by the SNP. And um, were you yourself made aware of this? Um, and if not, when did you become aware? Secondly. Do you think there's a pattern um, in, in terms of the senior SNP figures finding out about SNP business after the fact, you know, particularly with the auditors as well? Uh, I'll be straightforward. I've not 
I'm not aware of Colin's comments in relation to that, but if I, if I take you, uh, I'll take you at your word. Um, I was aware, I think, when it was printed on the front of a newspaper, was it the Daily Record, I think it was? I can see a colleague from the Daily Record <laughs> smiling there. I think I'll, I'll give them a name drop. I think it was perhaps uh, the, the Daily Record uh, it was in. So that, that's when I, uh, I, I learned about it. Um, I, I think to, to your wider point, and this goes to the heart of what the new leader of the party has instigated, uh, which is that governance review um, to ensure that all those uh, senior uh, officials, um, be they elected to the National Executive Committee or, or be they in headquarters, are fully aware of, of the situation which is which is in front of them. Um, is it, has that been the case um, up till now? I'm not entirely sure because I've never been a member of the National Executive Committee nor, nor an employee of headquarters. But it's quite clear that we can and must do things better, which is why that review has been instigated by Hamza. And like I say, I'm looking forward to, to it coming back, us being able to put our own house uh, in order. And for Hamza, to, um, for Hamza to continue his good work uh, in terms of combating the cost of living crisis, uh, resetting that relationship with, with business, which I think he's done expertly. And, and I think that was an important move to make and of course for us to get on with the business of holding this uh, UK government to, to account leading up to that general election next year Okay, so yeah in front here, uh, yeah I said this person first if that's right, <laughs> you can have it after Hello, uh, I'm Andrew Quinn from the Daily Record, as you know Stephen uh, and that, that, it was the Daily Mail actually this story was oh. so it wasn't us um, <laughs> but, So is, is Ian Blackford lying then that you said to him you gave him assurances over the auditors because he's quite clearly said that you have. And have you applied for an extension um, from the House of Commons authorities? There's, there's a big difference, if I may, Andrew, between um, stating that we are likely to secure an audit firm and having an audit firm. There's also a big difference between seeking to secure an audit firm and being able to provide certainty that you will meet deadlines. Uh, now, I've not sought to uh, in any way suggest that we would definitely meet any of our deadlines or obligations because I don't think that was the right tact to take. Indeed, the process to secure uh, an auditor is still very much underway, as it was um, when myself and, and Ian spoke, um, I think it might have been on the 7th of April. Um, so there's, there's, obviously, um, there's obviously steps that we now need to take in order to to meet the obligations of the, the House of Commons. We have been in constant contact um, with them uh, and we'll take things from there. And ha- have you applied then for, for an extension uh, to the May 31st deadline? Have you spoken to House of Commons authorities? Or? Yes, yes. Uh, we, we, we did ask the, the House of Commons uh, in respect of that, the authorities. It's my understanding that the 31st of May is the deadline and that's what needs to be kept to. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, we'll take one more uh, yeah, from here in the room. Do feel free to signal, and I'll, I'm going to take some questions yes, online as well. Of course, yeah. Which may not be about the SNP's financial issues. You may or may not be pleased to hear that. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Freddie Hayward from the New Statesman. Are you at all concerned that so explicitly stating your demands to support a potential future uh, Labour minority government will play into the Tories' hands and make a future Tory government more likely in the same way that it helped them in 2015? Uh, I don't think we've been explicit in terms of stating that we would back a a Labour government. What I'm being explicit about is that 
there's key policy areas where I would want to see the Labour Party deliver upon. Now, that's the devolution of uh, powers in relation to energy, mm. the devolution of powers in relation to employment law, and we can have discussions about single market access, the recent in that relationship with the European Union, immigration policy as well, but also, importantly, the, the right for the people of Scotland to determine their own future, to empower Holyrood to, to have... Uh, the power to to instigate that, and I, I think that very much puts the ball into the Labour Party's court. What what is it that they stand for when it comes to Scotland's future? Um, it, it's all good and well um, speaking at a UK level, but I think they need to be honest and upfront with the people of Scotland about what a Labour government would mean. And if if the Scottish National Party can play a role in terms of keeping that Labour uh, potential Labour government honest, if we can ensure that they are delivering. Uh, the aims and objectives which we would support for the the people of Scotland, then then of course we can visit at that time. But I think it's probably worthwhile me making clear that under no circumstances would I ever seek to um, support a, a Tory government. I think that would be uh, one step too far for me and indeed many of my colleagues, and rightly so. Okay, thanks. Yeah, I mean, but in terms of negotiating leverage, though, isn't that the issue that you would face in that scenario that the Labour Party would know that as SNP group you would only ever you would, you would never vote for to put a Conservative Prime Minister back into number 10 so isn't Keir Starmer likely to say we're not interested in, in your negotiating requests uh, and, and, and if, if Keir Starmer wants to, to run his general election campaign in Scotland on that prospectus that he's not going to <coughs> adhere to any of the requests of the Scottish National Party which I think are very rare, rare, uh, very fair and reasonable uh, requests, requests which I think the people of Scotland um, would be very keen to hear a, a UK Prime Minister talk up uh, then I think that's for Keir Starmer uh, to, to address and I'm sure that that would be as I said earlier would be reflected in, in the poll outcome um, there's a very clear issue here in the fact that we have been at an impasse when it comes to the constitution uh, for a long time it needs to be resolved in a in a democratic and, and orderly way um, we're proposing a, a solution to that and hopefully the Labour Party if they believe in devolution as they say they do will uh, we'll get on board Okay. All right. So a couple of questions from the online audience. Um, Thank you to those submitting. So one from um, someone called Erica Kearney, um, I guess in reference to what you were saying at the outset about free higher education, has asked, has the the free higher education in Scotland policy not led to fewer Scots being able to attend university due to the cap on Scottish government funded places? I think what the free higher education policy in Scotland has done is empower young people in Scotland who otherwise wouldn't have been able to go to university, of which I am one, to go on and, and get education. I think that's a that's a positive thing, and and of course we see more and more people from from lower back uh, lower income backgrounds now going to university in Scotland as well as a result of the fact that they're able to 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 gain access. Um, and I think that's something which should be celebrated. I think if you were a young person in England, uh, you would wish that you had the the same opportunities um, in that regard. And we should shout about it from the rooftops because it's a, it's a positive thing. Okay. And uh, another question about um, another policy where you that you, you mentioned where Scotland's taken a different tack to England. So the question is. 
from someone anonymous. Is it not true that Scotland can only give those free NHS prescriptions thanks to the thanks to the generosity of the block grant that's insured by the broad UK-wide tax base? And how would an independent Scotland fare? How would it be able to pay for such uh, generous public services, um, given it would lose? the access to UK-wide tax revenue? Well, well, of course, um, people in Scotland pay their taxes uh, as well. Um, and I think it's more than reasonable uh, for, for Scotland to, to get its fair share back. And, and this notion that um, we're effectively being subsidised to put in place good policy is, is for the birds. Good policy is coming from the fact that we have a parliament which has the powers to do these things and we have legislators who have the confidence, the desire and the determination to, to put in place policies that benefit people in Scotland. I, I guess I would flip that around and say I think the question there should be posed to the UK government as to why uh, they aren't seeking to put in place the same progressive measures that we are to protect uh, citizens in England uh, in the same way that the citizens in Scotland are, are reaping the benefit. Fair enough. But public spending in Scotland is quite a lot higher than England, although tax revenue is not. So there is there is that transfer going on, is there not, uh, and, within the union? And, and we, need to be, we need to be conscious of the fact that moving forward, we need to be able to, to grow Scotland's economy. That's why mm-hmm. the devolution of energy powers is, is so vitally important. As I said earlier, some £450 billion has flown from just off the coast of my city to the UK Treasury. If you were to go to certain communities in Scotland, you wouldn't believe it. Um, so we can't repeat those mistakes of the past. And I think if we can uh, if we can have the full powers that come with that in order to grow our economy, then I think we can do much better. And we only have to look at Ireland to see how that can be done. Uh, in a post-Brexit world, I think Ireland's the, the envy of everyone uh, in this small uh, enclave of the world in terms of what they are being able to uh, achieve. And we can look at comparator nations and see that they're happier, they're fairer, they're wealthier than Scotland. Mm. So why can't Scotland do that? Why are we uniquely placed in the world not to be able to grow our economy and to provide better public services for people? Um, I I think, again, that argument is one which was lost by the unionist side in, in 2014. And I think if that's the tack that people want to take going forward, it would be lost again. OK, fair enough. And I mean, on the economic growth point, um, I know that part of the answer from your perspective will be we need the full powers that would come with independence or additional powers, But uh, which, you know, that's, that's absolutely for you to advocate for. But with the powers that Scotland or the Scottish Government and Parliament currently have, could, do you think, could the Scottish Government not be doing more to encourage growth? Could it not be more business friendly, which is a criticism that certainly, again, I think Kate Forbes has made of, well, the government she was obviously part of. So, so I think in, in this uh, particular discussion, we all need to reflect upon the fact, and if I remember correctly here, uh, Scotland has the highest um, levels of inward investment outside of, of London. Um, that's that's a phenomenal achievement given the the disparity of that, that exists on on these aisles. So so in that regard, we're we're in a good place. Can we do more? Absolutely, we must do more. Um, but a lot of that will ultimately come back to the ability to to invest. Um, the Scottish Parliament can't borrow in the same way that the UK Parliament can. We're not going to be able to respond uh, to the Inflation Reduction Act. We're not going to be able to respond to the 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 concurrent measures that are going to be put in place by the, the European Union. So 
where we can do things, we are doing things. We're seeking to um, really drive home that green renewables uh, agenda to see the supply chain growth, to see um, a manufacturing base. But from my perspective, it's what more can you do with the ability to properly uh, invest in these projects to get behind them and to see the growth that would come on the back of that. So it's a, it's a, twin, it's a twin approach, I think, in that regard. Mm-hmm. Okay, fair enough. Um, do we have some more questions from people in the room? Also, I don't know if there are any... If, if there are any people in the overflow room, yes, I can see some people. <laughs> Feel free to pop your head around if you have a question as well. Um, so, yeah, okay, gentlemen there. And then the person popping their head around, I assume that was a question. Thank you. Philip Prattley from Leonardo, one of the Inwood investors, Stephen, to which you refer for 80 years in Edinburgh. For those of us in business, it's been quite a, an interesting exercise over the last year and over the last decade to try to read the SNP's view of their preference for a government in Westminster. And our interpretation has been, for a decade, many of your colleagues have been quite gleeful at the prospect of a continuing Conservative government because it's easier for you to point up the real differences between a UK government and a Scottish government. Are you now changing tack? Would you like to see a minority Labour government? Uh, If if I may... um... I've never been gleeful about the Conservative Party uh, in my puff, and that's that's because of the damage that was done to to communities like mine uh, by politicians a long time ago, um, and which has been continued uh, in recent times by David Cameron, George Osborne, uh, Theresa May, Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, Rishi Sunak. I think I got them all there. There has been significant change, of course, in, in recent times. Um, so I, there's been no glee for me in, in respect of that because of the damage which they've caused, uh, not least the economic carnage uh, at, the end of, at the end of last year. But, but look, there's, there's clear policy differences between ourselves in the Labour Party. I think I've touched upon um, a lot of them. I, I think the challenge now is for the Labour Party to start listening to, to people in Scotland and to get on board with what, what their, views, their views are. And if we can provide encouragement to an incoming UK Labour government, should that be a minority incoming UK Labour government, to reset its relationship with the European Union, to to change its tact in relation to immigration, to change its tact in relation to single market access, to to really empower the Scottish Parliament when it comes to the devolution of powers, um, then I think that would be a good thing. But again, uh, I'm not sure that's necessarily where Keir Starmer is, is coming from. And I don't think that's a good thing for Scotland. I don't think it's a good thing for the Labour Party uh, either. OK, thanks. Um, OK, I don't see any more hands at the moment. Uh, yes, I do, in fact. All right, so two gentlemen here. Hi, Jamie Booth, Cicero Consulting. Angus McNeil this morning, one of your colleagues in the SNP Westminster group, commented that he couldn't predict that Hamza Yousaf would lead the SNP into the next election. How widespread is this view amongst your colleagues? I'm absolutely confident that Hamza Yousaf will uh, lead us into the the next election. I look forward to standing shoulder to shoulder with him uh, as we go into that election. The next UK general election? Next UK election, next Scottish parliamentary election (laughs) as well. Okay. And uh, sitting next to you, yes, you've got the mic. Laurie Blakey from PLMR. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the deposit uh, return scheme. Do you think that's another example of the UK government kind of overstretching on Scottish, Scottish decision-making? I, I, I think it's 
quite clear um, from the correspondence that, that I've seen that um, the Secretary of State for Scotland has perhaps not been as truthful as he could have been uh, in relation to his actions and in, in relation to this. And I know that the Scottish Government have been uh, pursuing that. But this is, a, this is a consequence of the changing dynamic between the UK government and and indeed the Scottish government. And whether you agree with a policy or not is very different to whether you respect the right of a parliament to implement a policy or not. The Scottish Parliament has voted in favour of something. So in my view, um, if it sits within devolved competency, which I see that it does, the UK government should be should be accepting of that. And it is very much part of a wider trend that we have seen, uh, particularly from this UK government, to interfere directly, particularly on policies where they appear to differ from us. Uh, I don't think that's a healthy position to be in, uh, and it very much undermines Hollywood. I mean, on the deposit return scheme, and then I'll, I'll bring in the lady there. Um, I mean, the, the issue there is, of course, whether the UK government should um, offer create a, a legal exclusion from the UK Internal Market Act to enable the Scottish scheme to operate. I mean, there's a, there's a suggestion that the UK government is considering developing its own scheme that would operate probably GB-wide, not Northern Ireland, because of protocol and so on. Is, that not, is this not one of the areas where that would actually be a better outcome, to have a single scheme that operates across the whole of the country? So, so two things there. So what, what, we're seeking to, what, what is seeking to be put in place uh, is an exemption from an act which was put in place by the UK government to try and constrain the powers of Holyrood, uh, if I may. We wouldn't be needing to go through this process if the UK government hadn't, uh, hadn't put those provisions in place. And we did warn about the consequences mm. of doing that and that they would be far-reaching and delve into, into many devolved areas, which is why Scotland's parliament um, chose not to, to give consent to it. Um, but in relation to your second point, why should Scotland's Parliament have to wait for Westminster to do something? If we truly believe in devolution, if we truly believe in the empowerment of Scotland's Parliament, the Welsh Assembly, and indeed the Northern Irish Assembly, should it, should it be sitting, then surely the UK government should be confident enough to follow through in the, in the powers that have been given to those parliaments and to accept the, the devolved uh, Parliament's decision making because after all we can't forget in all of this that the Conservative Party haven't had a mandate since 1955 to govern in, in Scotland and yet the democratically elected decision makers uh, in Scotland who people have put an X beside of the ballot box they're being prevented from implementing policy on devolved areas and I think that's a very very dangerous precedent as Mark Drakeford uh, said himself uh, to, to set and of course we're, we're seeing it in different areas and Hopefully some of these things um, can be overcome in a cordial way, but like I say, it needs, it needs good faith uh, on both sides. We'll, we'll act in good faith in that regard, and I hope that uh, a Westminster government will too. Okay. Okay, we've got a question here. Thanks. Thank Hello, Elizabeth Mystery from Protect, the whistleblowing charity. Just a, a quick query. It's been quite the week for all the parties in terms of standards in public life, uh, probity and integrity. Are you, as an MP and uh, therefore as a prescribed person under the Public Interest Disclosure Act, are you confident that you would be able to handle whistleblowing appropriately should a whistleblower come to you? I, I, certainly, I certainly hope so. Um, I, it's, I, I think in terms of 
of Westminster. Um, there's obviously um, a very little time that goes past between between scandals, be that PPE scandals, be that ministerial interest scandals. Um, but I would like to think that if anyone had something that they needed to bring forward to me, they could certainly do so and it would be acted upon uh, efficiently and, and effectively. Um, I think that's, uh, that's a starting point for all uh, good relations and it should be a starting point for all politicians as well. Okay, uh, all right, great. A couple more hands. Uh, one right here is probably easiest for you, Lauren. <laughs> and then right at the back. Hi, Stephen. Uh, Mark Paul from the Irish Times. Um, you mentioned that uh, support for independence is stuck at about 50-50. What sort of a level do you think it needs to be at in the polls um, for uh, it to be inevitable that the British government, you know, morally has to give you some sort of a referendum? What sort of a level does it need to be? Yeah, um, I mean, there's, there's the temptation to, to put a number on it. Um, which I'm not going to fall into. Hmm. Um, but I think a sustained majority over a sustained period of time is the best way uh, to frame it and to do uh, to make it quite clear, as Alistair, uh, Alistair Jack outlined, albeit in those bizarre terms, that it is the undeniable will uh, of the people of Scotland. I think that's the only thing which would change the minds of a Conservative government. I think it would also change the minds of a Labour government. Um, but I'm not entirely certain that we're going to see a majority Labour government. Uh, so that obviously affords us the opportunity to perhaps push things uh, in the intervening time. OK, thank you. Yeah. Uh, my name is Brendan Marsh. I work for the um, electricity infrastructure FTSE 100 company SSE, uh, headquartered in Scotland, and we're actually the developer of the Coriolis project yes, that Stephen yeah. referenced in his speech. Um, uh, as a company, we're sort of neutral on the issue of independence and where power can be devolved. So, unfortunately, I can't sort of comment on our view on that. But my question for Stephen is sort of with the sort of in the House of Commons, there's going to be a new Energy Net Zero committee soon, chaired by one of your colleagues in the SNP group. And I wondered how you see that future chairperson working with yourself and SNP, MSPs and the Scottish Government Minister's responsibility for energy going forward. Uh, yeah, uh, a, a very a very salient question, and yeah, you're right. There's absolutely SSE here behind Corey Glass, and I know they've got a number of other investments in Scotland, which are, are of course uh, very welcome. And there's a lot of good, high paid employment coming from from SSE and uh, through the work that that they do. In terms of the the committee chair, um, I think it's important in the first instance for the the new committee chair, and it will be one of my colleagues. I'm not going to say who I'm going to vote for because uh, they'll be chasing me around the House of Commons if I do. Um, but I think it's uh, I think it's important for any committee chair not just to work collaboratively with myself uh, but obviously to work collaboratively across party because that's what Westminster committees are there to do uh, and, and in that basis the, the role of the committee chair is incredibly important because we can't escape from the, the twin track challenges of climate change and energy security uh, and they're obviously going to have an incredibly important role both working across the House of Commons but also indeed with the sector and others to ensure that there's a high quality discussion that there are reports which are being undertaken are valued uh, and hopefully to the benefit of all uh, I think that's a, that's a good starting point uh, and I'm sure that whomever uh, takes on, on the chair and good luck to them that, that they're able to deliver upon that Great, okay if we've got time to squeeze in just a couple of more quick, okay. quick ones, yeah. um, so we'll take one in the room in one second if you don't mind and then uh, but before that um, Alexander Brown of the Scotsman uh, Says here the Scotsman. I assume that's the Scotsman. Um, says Sturgeon's, Nicholas Sturgeon's pledge to close the attainment gap between rich and poor is no nearer completion than it was when she first took office. Um, is that from a lack of devolved powers, 
or are there areas of Scottish government policy that you think should change? Um, it's, it's firstly, I think it's my understanding that, that there is a, a closing going on there. Um, but I think it's you cannot have a discussion about the closing the attainment gap without reflecting upon the fact that many of the many of the reasons as to why people are living in poverty um, and the levers of power to alleviate them from living in poverty are held here at Westminster. And, you know, I lose track of the number of people who contact me um, in relation to the benefits that they receive, reserved benefits, which are the, the responsibility of the UK government, and the impact that that's having upon their ability to get by, not just in relation to benefits, but in relation to energy bills, in relation to uh, the action which could be taken in relation to inflation, in relation to interest rates. So across the board... Um, when it comes to these things and the pressures which are being put on households, um, both households with and without children, much of the responsibility less rests here um, at Westminster. But where the Scottish government can and is acting is in relation to the likes of the, the Scottish child payment, uh, a payment which has been put in place to to ensure that those living in the the most challenging of, of times and circumstances are able to get a little bit more money in their pocket to ensure their kids are fed and they have clothes on their back. That's a good thing. But it is also very frustrating to see money being given with one hand by the Scottish Government, which I may say has been done so in a compassionate way, and with the other hand, uh, money being taken away by by a UK government through a, through a social security system, which I, I don't think is fit for purpose. Okay, thank you. All right, final question then, uh, gentlemen there. Thanks for waiting. Yeah, thanks very much. It's uh, Fraser Grieve, Scotch Whiskey Association. Um, firstly, many thanks to, to you and your colleagues for voting against the historic uh, duty rise uh, last week, um, uh, a tax that is already the highest in the, the G7. We also had, had the, the First Minister do a business reset and uh, lobby the, the Prime Minister yesterday on the need for, for fairer tax for, for Scotch whiskey. Um, and also for the, the exclusion of the industry from energy support. Given that reset and that push, how do we get the Treasury to better support um, industries like ours and, and businesses uh, with the, the Scottish Government looking to do that reset? Uh, yes, that, thank you for your question. I think it is right to reflect upon the fact that the, the First Minister made that one of his priorities when he was speaking with the, the Prime Minister uh, yesterday. I think that was an important step to take. We've obviously uh, sought to, to oppose it within the, the House of Commons um, and the First Minister taking it right to the, the steps of Downing Street was, was the right thing to do. Um, not just because it is a, is a policy which could have um, detrimental impact, but we need to recognise the success story that is the Scottish whisky industry. Um, it is uh, one of Scotland's uh, most defining industries uh, and globally globally renowned. I think from my perspective in respect of the, of the Treasury, what we need to see is an acceptance that the industry is hugely important to the Scottish economy uh, and it should be allowed to grow. Um, and anything which puts a barrier up to that needs to be considered seriously. Now, I did see comments from the Secretary of State for Scotland that he had opposed it within Cabinet, and I might get a little bit political here, but I guess that shows the, the influence of a Conservative Secretary of State who has the, the ability to, to try and ensure that things that are detrimental to Scotland don't happen. He was quite clearly, quite clearly ignored. I don't think that does him any favours. I don't think that does his office um, any favours whatsoever. And if the Treasury uh, could, I think they should uh, sit down with industry and try to find a, a solution to ensure that it continues to grow. <coughs> Great. Okay. Thank you. Well, we've come to the end of the of the hour. Um, thank you all for um, 
joining us for your questions and participation. There'll be a video and sound recording of the event um, up on the IFG website, on YouTube, as a podcast, etc. fairly soon. Um, so last thing for us to do is just to say, well, thank you very much again, Stephen, for joining us. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thank you.